continue to worship God by the power of His Spirit, by hearing from His Word. I invite you to open the book of Hebrews. Continue to make our way through Hebrews as a church together, and we have come to Hebrews chapter 3. We're looking at verses 1 through 6 this afternoon, or this morning, I should say. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Hebrews 1 through 6, let's give our attention now to God's holy and inspired word. Therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This concludes the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May God now be pleased to add his blessing to it. Well, when we talk about the so-called five points of Calvinism, we tend to focus on the first four. There's total depravity, which doesn't mean that we are as sinful as we could be outwardly, but that our entire self has been affected by sin and that we are unable to offer anything pleasing to God in and of ourselves. Uh, Unconditional election that God chose us before the foundation of the world, not because of anything He foresaw in us, not conditioned upon anything in us, but solely by His sovereign grace. Limited atonement, while the gospel is declared to all, and any sinner who hears may come to Christ, that Christ only died for His elect. Only their sins are paid for. Irresistible grace, that God will draw His elect by His grace, that they cannot ultimately resist it, but will come to Him. All who the Father has given me, Christ says, will come to me. But the one we don't talk much about is the perseverance of the saints. I think this is because uh, this is not something that we have to defend uh, against Arminianism. But the perseverance of the saints is important. And it refers to the fact that the saints will believe in Christ, will not abandon their faith until the end of their life. They will continue to believe, even through difficulties and persecution. Now, God is the one who perseveres His own by His grace. However, He uses means to do that. He uses warnings. He uses exhortations to continue to believe. And that's what chapter 3 of Hebrews is about. Now, we tend not to face the severe difficulties that Christians in the first century and even in other parts of the world face today. And we feel persecuted if, we, uh, if something goes wrong for us in one area. However, the deceitful poison of apostasy is a common trait 
in the remaining sinful flesh. And so we should heed these warnings. We should take them seriously. We should heed and pay attention to what Scripture is exhorting us here to. But that should not lead us to rely on ourselves, but to rely on God's grace. So we're going to look at three truths to keep in mind in order to persevere in the Christian life. When the Christian life gets hard, what are some things we need to keep in mind? First, our calling. Second, we need to consider Christ. And third, the confidence uh, that we must hold fast to. So first, our calling. Uh, the first part of verse 1 says, Therefore, holy brothers, who you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Uh, therefore means that the author's drawing a conclusion from what has gone before. What he's been talking about for the first two chapters is that Jesus is superior to the angels. Even though for a little while he was made lower than, in the, than the angels, in that he assumed humanity. It doesn't mean in himself that he decreased in any sort of value, that he became somehow lower than the angels, and that he was less than God. He, he is always God. But what Scripture means by saying he became lower than the angels is that he assumed our humanity. And so in light of that, in, in light of all that Jesus is, in light of the fact that the word of angels proved reliable, and there was a just retribution for rejecting their words, and someone greater than the angels has come, and he has spoken. In light of all of that, consider Jesus. But before we get to the consider Jesus part, the author says something about us. Something that we need to not breeze by, but we need to focus on if we're going to persevere by God's grace. First, he calls us holy. The word holy simply means that we're set apart, acceptable unto God for His purpose and presence. And there's two categories of holiness. You could call them. They're, they're inseparable, but they are distinct. And the first is positional holiness. That is, that's fixed. There's nothing that needs to be added to that or improved upon that. That we are accepted by God in our persons. The second kind of holiness is what we're more familiar with, and that is a positional holiness. This acceptable behavior in God's sight. Holiness in heart and conduct. Here, in verse 1, the Hebrew author is referring to our positional holiness. And that's because he calls us holy. Uh, we already are this. Whereas back in 2.11, he says that we are being sanctified. We are being made holy. It's not complete. Here, he speaks of completeness. We are holy. We are accepted. We are approved of by God. We can draw near to Him. And He will not reject us. We have full confidence to do this. This is our identity as Christians. We who are in Christ. Christ has accomplished this for us. And we must reflect on this, our identity. We need to know who we are so that we live out that identity. The coach understands this. He tells his team that they are champs, so they act like it. Now, they may not act like it, but he tells them they're champs so that 
they live out that identity. If, if they think they're a bunch of losers, then they're going to likely live that out. They're not going to put in the, the motivation to win. Why, why does it matter? I'm going to lose anyway. Sometimes uh, we say this uh, to, to men. You need to act like a man, we'll say. You are a man, therefore act like it. Well, the Lord tells us our true identity. Not just saying these things falsely to get us riled up for some game, but telling us who we really are so that we will live it out. If we think we are guilty, condemned before God, that we are darkness, that we are defiled, even though we still have that remaining pollution, but if we see that as our identity, we're likely going to live that out. We're going to be withdrawn from God. We're going to come back under the law as a covenant of works. I got to do this. I got to clean myself up in order to get approved by God. But if we know that we are holy, we are accepted. Even though we, we struggle and we have all this remaining pollution, we say, how can this even be? It's not my experience. But because of the work of Christ, because He shed His innocent blood, to cleanse us from all our sin, to forgive us all our sins, so that we are holy and blameless and beyond reproach before God. If we know that, if we believe it, we will then begin to live that out. So this is an important consideration and focus for us in order to persevere. We are also referred to as brothers here. And this takes us back to what the author just said and Chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, when he said that Christ is not ashamed. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. We are his brothers. And we have a heavenly Father. And then the author tells us that we share in a heavenly calling. The calling is used in many different senses in Scripture. But here it's being used in the sense of being summoned to a destination. Setting our destiny. It's similar but not exact to being summoned into court. If you've ever received a summons uh, to court, that means you have to come to court to testify or, or whatever the case may be. And just like with the court where the, the, the origin of the summons and the destination of the summons is the same, so it is with our heavenly calling. God is the one who has called us. And he has called us to share in a life with Him in heaven forever. And He has effectually called us. That means it's going to happen because God has made it happen. These things we need to keep in mind when times get tough. When the narrow road of following Christ gets weary. When church, church life becomes strenuous. We are holy. We are accepted by God. We are approved by Him. We are clean, pure, innocent, and undefiled in His sight. We are loved by Him and not rejected. Whatever trial or difficulty comes our way is not to harm us, but to sanctify us. He looks at our sin not as a reason to condemn or accuse us, but as a reason to help and sanctify us. And brothers and sisters, this is not only your identity. Look around. This is 
your brother's identity as well. Do you see them this way? Do you see them as such? Do you look at their sin and say, this is a reason for me to condemn you? Or are you like Christ? He looks at our sin and says, this is a reason to help, to come alongside, to bear burdens. Do you realize that in God's sight, your brother, your sister in Christ is holy in God's sight? May we look at each other in this way. We share in the same destiny, this heavenly calling. We are holy brothers because of the work of Christ. And this brings us to the second truth to keep in mind in order to persevere in the Christian life, and that is Christ. The second half of verse 1 says, Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, one of the ways you could sum up the book of Hebrews is this right here. Consider Jesus. Deeply think about him. Mull over, meditate on, have your mind engaged on him and his glory. Dwell on Jesus. We have things that we tend to dwell on, don't we? Things that we mull over in our mind over and over again. Uh, we have certain things that occupy our mind and consume our thoughts. We can think about a certain strategy for work, or if you're like me, a certain strategy for, for hunting. Sit there and think about, oh, you know, maybe if tomorrow I should go go this place, and I look on the map on, on X, and I'm thinking about all the possible scenarios, and I'm just mulling it over in my mind over and over again, and that's called considering. Uh, we can do this with any hobby, any TV show, any sport or, or book. Meditating on a story we read or a movie we saw, thinking about it over and over again, revisiting the, the pleasant things in our mind, the surprising things, the exciting parts of the story, or some sports event. Man, when my team scored that touchdown, that, that was something. That catch, oh man, just think about it over and over and over again. However, Scripture here calls us to do this with Jesus, to meditate on, to, to mull over, it, to think often and deeply on Jesus. Think on Him being true God, eternally begotten of the Father, the only natural Son of God, having His very eternal and infinite nature Therefore, He is the radiance of His glory and the exact imprint of His nature. All that God is, He is. And is therefore the exact image of God. In a way that is mysterious to us, that we cannot explain, that we cannot comprehend, He became like us in every way. Without sin. True God and true man. Infinite and yet finite. Perfect in knowledge, and yet growing in knowledge. How does that work? It blows our minds. We cannot comprehend. But He came for us. He came to fulfill all righteousness for us. And you know why? Because He knows that we had no righteousness of our own. Think about that love. What did we have to give to Him? What did we have to offer Him? Nothing but our sin. 
nothing but the sin that brings about the wrath of God. But knowing that, what does he do? He comes and says, I will fulfill all righteousness. I will fulfill the law. I will obey in their place to cover all their sin and disobedience so that they will have a righteousness by which they may stand before God forever. And that whole life of suffering, being a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, bearing the curse his whole life, culminating in the cross, bearing the wrath of God, suffering in his soul, and suffering all that shame, bearing shame and scoffing rude, being rejected by men, being falsely accused, having disciples turn his back on him, all the suffering that he underwent, all of it for us. Meditate on that. Think about that. The words of the hymn, stricken, smitten, and afflicted, help us in this. Where it says, tell me, ye who hear him groaning, was there ever grief like his? Friends through fear his cause disowning, foes insulting his distress. Many hands were raised to wound him. None were interposed to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. Meditate on this. Think on this. Dwell on this. Sing those words. Stop to meditate on what they mean. Imagine what it would be like to have so many people turn against you standing in our place because that is what we deserve. There are so many things that we can consider about Him. The truths of God, Christ, and the Gospel are so rich that we will spend an eternity dwelling on them and never growing bored. Think about that. All of eternity dwelling on God. Being able to see God and having our minds blown every minute. He will never grow old in our sight, because we are finite, and He is infinite. We can never exhaust the depths of God. Now the two things that the author brings up here is that Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. Uh, This is the only time that Jesus is called an apostle in the Bible. And it doesn't mean that He's on the same level as the twelve apostles. Uh, Rather, apostle simply refers to one who is sent out in the authority of another. The apostles were so called because they were sent out by God in His authority to lay the foundation of the New Testament church and to speak infallibly on behalf of God. Well, Jesus is this in a supreme sense. Uh, the book of uh, The Gospel of John calls Him the sent one, the one sent by God. He is not only the foundation, He's the cornerstone, and He has spoken infallibly on behalf of God, and is in fact the infallible revelation of God Himself. Therefore, we ought to consider carefully what He says, submitting our whole self to it without reservation. And He is the high priest. Aaron and the Levites were high priests in the Old Covenant. But they were types. They were shadows that pointed to Christ. He is the one who would deal with our sin truly. Not by offering up any animal sacrifice, but offering up 
himself to make full atonement. The author says something quite interesting here. He says that Jesus is the apostle and high priest of our confession. This word means to profess, to speak aloud words that are in agreement with the truth. Now, the reformer William Gouge says, the very word as used here implies that Christians openly profess their faith. I think a bit of historical background here is necessary for the book of Hebrews to help us better understand this because he uses the word confession rather than faith or conviction. Christians are a confessing people. They confess Jesus with the mouth because they believe in their heart. Romans 9 or Romans 10:9. 2 Corinthians 4 says that speaking is the natural impulse of believing. The Apostle Paul says, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak. And this initially happens uh, when one comes to faith. 1 Timothy 6 reminds Timothy that he made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And this good confession reveals that this pertains to Christ and eternal life. Christ made the good uh, confession as well before Pontius Pilate. Uh, however, the Hebrew writer uses different language than good confession. He says, the confession of us. The confession of us. I've been reading up on early church liturgy, uh, order of service. I find this stuff really fascinating. I know it's like who who reads this stuff? You know who, who would find this stuff interesting? I, I'm I'm weird. Um, I also keep records of weather and stuff like that, so I'm just a strange duck. But uh, anyway, I find this stuff really really fascinating. How did the early church worship? What did it look like? And the main conclusion that scholars have have come to is that early church Worship or liturgy is patterned after the Jewish synagogue. Now, the synagogue is not the temple. The synagogue is the place that the Jews would go to every Sabbath day. That would be like, like a local church because they could not travel uh, to the temple in Jerusalem. Some of them lived days away from it. So they needed to worship every Sabbath day. So they would go to the synagogue except for the three times a year where they would have, uh, they would have to go to Jerusalem to the temple. And so when scholars looked at this, they saw that the early church liturgy is patterned after the Jewish synagogue. Uh, this, the, we even see in the early church that they're still actually meeting in the synagogue. So, for example, in James 2.2, it says, if a, a rich man and a poor man come into your synagogue, now the English translates it as uh, assembly. However, uh, it's the Greek word synagogue. So during that time of the writing of James, they were still meeting in a synagogue. And I came across a journal article that gave an order of service for their Jewish synagogue. It goes like this. An appointed person would start off with prayer. The congregation would respond appropriately to these prayers, either with praise or confession. Uh, then there would be a reading of the law and a reading of the prophets. We see that in Luke 4, where uh, Jesus uh, goes and finds from the prophets uh, Isaiah. 
uh, the preacher would stand up and give a word of exhortation called a sermon. We see that in the book of Acts. Acts 13, 15 says, After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue said to the apostle Paul and his companions, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Then there was reciting of a creed. Now, creed is our modern language. What they called this was the Shema or the Confession. The Shema or the Confession. Shema uh, simply is the, the Hebrew word that means here. And it refers to what they would recite in, from Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So when the author of Hebrews says, the confession of us, we need to understand it in their culture. Uh, we tend to impose our culture back on uh, to the text of Scripture. Today, uh, our religion is very private to us. It's very personal. Uh, it's, it's very just me and God. It's between me and God is a common saying. However, religion has typically been very public. And so when the author says, the confession of us, He's speaking in the context of how they worshipped. Very public. The confession of us used to be the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Likely others. This was given to them by the great Moses. But the confession wasn't about Moses. Now, the confession of us is about Jesus. Not only... Not only He's not just the man that gave them something. He is the focal point of what they confess. He is the apostle of the confession of us, the Hebrew writer says. And the writer goes on to compare then Moses and Jesus to speak of the superiority of Jesus. He says that Jesus is greater than Moses and he deserves greater Glory than the glory of a builder over a house. And this is important for them to say because there was a Jewish writing during that time that says Moses is greater than the angels. And so he needed to address that. And he first starts out by saying in verse 2 that Moses was faithful in all God's house. And this is a reference to Numbers 12 where God confronts Aaron and Miriam for for speaking against Moses. Uh, this is not only because of what Exodus 22-28 says, you shall not revile a leader of your people, but also because Moses is a prominent prophet who is faithful in God's house. And so God says, Moses is faithful in all my house. And that's what the Hebrew writer is bringing up here. But Jesus it's also much different. See, Moses is compared to Jesus in that he's similar in being faithful. That's true, but Jesus is much different. Verse 3, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Jesus is to be counted worthy of more glory than Moses. He uses the illustration of a builder having more glory in the house he built. And that is because he is the builder of the house. And we see this parenthetical statement in verse 4. 
for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And this is an obvious fact. But the reason he brings this up is because every house has a builder, including God's house. Well, who's the builder of God's house? Well, it's the one who has built all things, which is God. And so we see in verses 5 through 6, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. We notice the difference. Moses is a servant. The steward. It's the manager of the house. He's in the house. But he's not the son over the house. The son is the rightful heir. And Christ is also the builder of the house. He is building his church. And this brings us to the third truth to keep in mind in order to persevere in the Christian life, and that is the confidence we are to maintain. Verses, the end of verse 6, And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So we, the people of God, believers, are his house. We're the dwelling place of God. That's what a house is, a dwelling place. Well, God dwells with us by his Spirit. We're the true temple. And we're also a house in that we're a household. We're a family. We're brothers who have the same Heavenly Father. But he adds this condition. If we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope, which is the hope of the gospel, having heaven based on Christ's work. Some may see this and wonder if our salvation is dependent upon our perseverance, our confidence, our hoping. Some may even wonder if you can lose your salvation. If I don't keep my confidence up, then I won't be His anymore. However, we need to understand every verse of the Bible in light of the whole of Scripture. That's really, really important. If I arrive at a conclusion from a verse that contradicts other parts of the Scripture, I know my conclusion is wrong. So our interpretation of Scripture needs to be guided by the whole of Scripture. And Scripture teaches we cannot lose our salvation. Uh, For example, very clearly, Romans 8.29-30 says that those whom God predestined, these very ones He also called. There's your heavenly calling. And these very ones whom He called are the very ones whom He also justified. Irreversible declaration that you are righteous. Not based on your works, but based on the righteousness of Christ. And these very ones whom He justified are the very ones whom He glorified that He brought to heaven. There's an unbreakable chain from start to finish. And if you're paying attention, you notice it was God doing all the work. Those whom He predestined, these He also called, He also justified, He also glorified. In Philippians 1, says that He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. If He began the work, He's not going to stop it. So we do believe in once saved, always saved. We do believe that. Uh, The the question is, not the always saved part, the question is the the once saved part. Meaning, whether or not God has begun the work. It's not a question of whether or not he will continue it, but whether or not he has begun it. This is because unbelievers may appear to be believers for a time and even think themselves to be so. 
Uh, Jesus speaks about this in the parable of the seeds. You remember there's, there's, there's four soils. There's not two soils. There's four. There's not two in you either have the rocky soil that rejects the word of God or the good soil that receives it and bears fruit. There's two in the middle. And the two in the middle are, initially there may be a response. Maybe a, a surface level, superficial reception, reception of the word of God. But then trials come. Then persecution comes. Then things that are hard as pertaining to walking the narrow road comes, and the person gives up their faith. That's called apostasy, from the Greek word meaning to fall away. And it doesn't mean the person lost their salvation. It doesn't mean that the person was a believer to begin with. There was an initial superficial response, but there wasn't a true faith. And it's evidenced by them leaving and abandoning the faith. This is what the Hebrew writer is warning against. Hold fast to the confidence, the trust, the assurance you have of Christ and the gospel. Don't lose it. Don't give up on it. Don't throw it away. And genuine believers will say to this, yes, I need to heed this warning, but not, I'm going to do it. But rather, oh God, Keep me. Oh God, be merciful to me. And if you have been deceiving yourself into thinking you are a Christian, when you're not, then there's good news for you. Call out to God, and He will receive you. He will not reject any who come to Him. He will save you, He will give you grace, and He will give you grace to believe and continue to persevere. But the answer, beloved, does not lie in ourselves. It is not by us saying, I need to make sure to believe harder, keep myself, keep my eyes fixed on my faith to make sure I'm believing well enough. Rather, we fix our eyes on Jesus. We consider Him. We focus on His work for us. We trust that He has won the victory over our sin. So that we are no longer slaves, but sons. We persevere not by focusing on ourselves or our faith, but on the object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our confidence and boasting is not in ourselves, but it's, it, but it's in our Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to bring up a wonderful picture of this perseverance in action. It comes from a video I saw of some Ukrainian believers uh, around the time the war started. I'm not making any political comments about uh, the war or anything. Uh, these believers are innocently just caught up in it, no matter what, uh, why it happened. But you can imagine how scary it would be to have war break out around you. Will, your, will you and your family survive? Will you have food supplied to you? Will you have shelter? Will that be destroyed? So many fears and uncertainties surround uh, war. We get fearful at the smallest uncertainty, so you can imagine how they felt. But in this video, there are a group of believers gathered around a kitchen table in a seemingly small house. And they were saying in Ukrainian, He will hold me fast. And you could tell based on the tune. And they were singing this, He will hold me fast. And this, brothers and sisters, is how we persevere. It's not by focusing on ourselves or, 
or trying to stir up ourselves to persevere. But it's having this confidence. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so. Not because I'm strong enough. But because my Savior loves me so. He will hold me fast. May we look to Christ and trust Him that He indeed will hold us fast. Amen. Well, let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask for your, your help. We ask that you will continue to, to be at work in us. Uh, we know you will keep us and you will hold us fast, but we ask you to do it. We ask you to do it according to your promise. That we look to Christ in the good times and the hard times. That we consider Him. Help us to do that, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We turn now to one of the ways that he perseveres us, and that's the Lord's table. Uh, the Lord's table uh, represents uh, uh, some realities, a real death, a real body, that our Lord Jesus Christ assumed our humanity, represented by the bread, broken, that body was given for us. The, the, a real uh, flesh and blood, the cup represents blood, poured out for us, shed for our forgiveness of sins. This helps us to consider Jesus and keeps our eyes fixed on Him. If you are a believer in Christ, if you have turned from your sin and you are trusting Him and you want help to persevere, then eat and drink with us. If you have not trusted Christ, if you have not turned from your sin and, and turned to Him for salvation, do not eat, do not drink, for you will eat and drink judgment on yourself. Now, there's a, there's a stack. On top is a cup of either grape juice or wine. And then in the bottom uh, cup underneath is a piece of bread. So take a stack, and the uh, according to your conscience, the, uh, the grape juice is in the colored cup. The wine is in the clear cup. So take uh, according to your conscience, and uh, wait until everyone has been served, and we will eat and drink together. Come up row by row. Uh, take uh, an element, return to your seat. There's also some in the back. For those in the back, so if you please start coming up at this time.